Welcome to Moments the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden and Lauren Wetmore. So, Sky, how are you doing on this eve of the Momus Emerging Critics Residency? Nervous, <laughs> jangly, <laughs> but um, excited. Yeah. How about you? I'm really excited. I've been digging into the reading list, which uh, has a whole bunch of stuff that I wish that I had that I had been able to read, you know, years ago when I was first starting out. Um, and one of the things that I was really happy about was that many of the uh, people that we invited to to lead the days of the residencies had cited our guests for this episode. Um, so there are several uh, several texts by them, including their Instagram page, uh, which kind of sits as a reading within this art criticism residency as a text in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So do you want to do you want to tell us about who you interviewed? Yes, uh, our guests today are the White Pube, uh, which is a collective of two women, Gabrielle De La Puente and Zarina Mohammed, both based in the UK. Um, and it's true, I had already set up this uh, interview when our syllabi started to take shape for these residencies, and it was pretty cool to see their texts relied on so heavily or looked mm-hmm. to so reliably by um, our workshop leaders, who are you know critics and curators from around the world. So the mm-hmm. White Pube has left an impact it, it is funny though to be in like these fairly self-serious meetings with the teaching cohort in the last few weeks and the world cube a million times (laughs) it's not not to my liking Um, I gotta say Sky it's not the first time I've heard you say pube but it was the most jarring (laughs) in mixed company you know (laughs) but I mean I just I have a ton of admiration for them I I guess I'll give a bit of a praises here to um, you know who they are and the impact that they're having so the white pube they started about five years ago and um, these two women I mentioned Gabriella and Zarina based in Liverpool and London respectively but they were at the time um, sharing an art degree at Central St. Martin's and sharing their frustration um, on a fairly regular basis around sort of the star system that um, was so relied on um, by the establishment critics and the papers, what they call broadsheets, by the way, right. uh, during the interview. And they were just uh, like, it, specifically, I think the, the motivation sort of surged from a particular Guardian review, what they called, quote, subjectivity masquerading as objectivity. And what they wanted to sort of present or push forward as an alternative in criticism was what they called embodied criticism. So we discussed what that means to essentially like press their own bodies into the rooms that hold art and to speak from that quote, sticky subjectivity. And we also discuss power because while they've only been working on this for five years, which that's um, true of Momus as well, unlike Momus, they have 60,000 Instagram followers and have recently (laughs) brought the Tate to its knees and in doing so helped The Guardian publish a piece they couldn't get through previous to the white pube sort of doing some call out stuff on on Instagram. And so it's all happening from, you know, like their parents' basements. Amazing. There is this like, you know, tremendous power and like gravitational pull um, that they have engendered there so so they've scaled up and we discuss what that means and I've been thinking through sort of how to reinvent moments as well after that sort of crucial five-year mark has been crested but also just because the context you know in which I bore this thing out has changed so dramatically and I think they're feeling similarly um, and also what do you do with that power and yeah. the discrepancy of that sizable audience as it weighs against the sort of smallness of the lived reality Um, Like they've had to maintain day jobs in order to pull this thing off. And they've been fairly insistent that people recognize this as a part-time effort that relies on nobody but its readers for income. And uh, that autonomy gives them exactly the power that they've now sort of accrued. Um, And so, yeah, I'd say as like two bootstrapping online art criticism outfits, like divided by an ocean, the loneliness of this work fell away in this interview very quickly. And it became, you know, conversation among peers, I would say. Um, And I forgot the recorder was there almost immediately, which is a nice feeling. I will say one other thing. 
about the scene of this recording due to some cautious COVID travel that I undertook last week to finally see some family um, one province over. I had to record this interview on the road. And so the long of it and the short of it is I was tucked into like a small closet in a baby's room to record <laughs> this uh, to get away from said baby. And I didn't <laughs> and I didn't have my mic with me. And I was surrounded by teddy bears just like sitting on them. They were piled up and under the computer. They were like somehow above me as well as beneath me. And I swear it's the best audio that we've ever produced. <laughs> we have to figure out how to replicate this in both of our apartments. Did you struggle with any kind of colloquialisms uh, speaking to two British people? <laughs> I love that you would know to ask that as someone who has lived in the UK. <laughs> it's true, actually. I, I meant to tuck this into the intro that almost does like housekeeping. Um, they say the word gobshite a few times <laughs> in, the first, in the first section of the chat. And I will proceed to define what that means. Gobshite. <laughs> Irish slang, moderately offensive, is one who engages in nonsensical chatter or unwanted conversation. So, for instance, what's that gobshite talking about now? <laughs> so is this just a definition of podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the exception of this episode. Amazing. And with that, Sky Gooden and the White Pube. So I really appreciate you two taking the time. This is such a heady season um, and to bring ourselves together to sort of check in on um, the work that we're respectively doing in criticism and what brought us to um, this work is meaningful to me. Um, We have some things in common in terms of sort of bootstrapping online publications five years ago. And I know currently I'm thinking a lot about um, how to iterate MoMIS going forward and perhaps even renovate its mandate, considering that the context in which it lives has changed utterly. So that's a conversation I'd be really curious to have with both of you as well. Um, but maybe to start, I could just get a sense of your your cute meat. <laughs> you were at Central St. Martin's in 2015, sharing frustrations about the art world. Do you want to just maybe set the scene for us? Oh, yeah. I love doing this. Um, so <laughs> we were... We went we weren't best friends we were friends <laughs> no to offense to be clear no offense Serena I liked you but like not in that way I um, says this and it wounds me it does <laughs> over and over it's true I think it's a good I think I like starting with that because we've become such good friends through doing this that it's nice to have like a starting point yeah. from which all this mm-hmm. happened so we were mm-hmm. both on BA fine art at Central St Martins and we were in the 2D pathway so we were kind of expected to make paintings and work with images and things like that and we were in the same tutorial group for the fair for the second and third year of the course so we were able to become familiar with each other's work and I think we were the two like internet kids so we were we were like the only people who had tumblr um and we could like Mm. recognize the references in each other's work and things like that but more generally it was just quite a a talkative um course I think like something we've realized since graduating and teaching in different universities is that like our course just totally trains us to chat about art like all we would do is sit in the studio and moan about things. And it, that's that's kind of a good setting for why the white pube was able to come out of a place like Central St. Martins um, in a way that maybe wouldn't have happened in a few other universities where their focus is like, this is how to make some art. This is how to be a, you know, a career exhibitor. Um, all we did was chat. <laughs> <laughs> And what was just so those of us who aren't in Britain have a sense, what is the reputation of Central St. Martin's at that time? See, I'm not quite sure what it was externally, but um, I guess within it, it would, would like, I feel like we had like an internal reputation amongst ourselves as a place where you'd go and meet other gobshites. Like it, <laughs> um, I think maybe like the art school of like the 90s and noughties kind of had a reputation as being like, this is where you go if you want to do like stuff that's edgy and radical but like we were there at a time from like 2013 to 2016 like it was just making that transition over from like the art school of like radical yesteryear to 
the arts university where they were given us like professional development modules and like um partnering with galleries so we could do mm. you know little mini exhibitions in them it was this weird hangover right from like the ye oldie radical art school of like way back when and this new future of like kind of low-key an American model where like an education is something you purchase and it's a bit more transactional right like you're getting what you pay for it's vocational I don't know within the art school it was very much like St Martin's is where you go to get radicalized like there's a bit more of like uh like a, a kind of tetchy edgy gobshite energy because um, it, it definitely has a legacy of very famous alumni particularly through the fashion school uh, side of things and I know that when I got accepted um a lot of my family and friends in Liverpool already knew the name in a way that you know they probably wouldn't have been as familiar with goldsmiths or the Slade like they knew Jarvis Cocker they knew Alexander McQueen they knew MIA they knew all these um big names and for some reason they also knew where they'd studied um and it 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 made me quite excited when I was moving down from Liverpool because all these people who are much older than me seemed to know what I was getting myself into and I was like oh what's gonna happen (laughs) and then everything that in a way, everything that they had built up did totally end up happening through the white pube. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's that's true. Now you'll be one of the names. <laughs> um, was your your shared frustration with what you were seeing in the broadsheets um, also a frustration experienced within that the confines of that education, or were you happy with? with that experience oh my god no that that's completely it <laughs> this drove me mental um <laughs> I, I, I used to look back at time in actual school before university when I was younger and I would think oh my god I used to read so many books and magazines and listen to like podcasts and audiobooks and then I went to university and the lecturers would be like oh you should get this book out and read the second chapter in it because it's going to be really pertinent to the type of work that you're doing right now and it will help you solve the problem that you know you're trying to fix in your practice and then I would go and get that book out and I would like ignore it and have to renew it again and again and again until the library was like okay just give it back to us you're not going to read it I was like okay no you've you've got me that's fine and it was be kind of like a mix of that and realizing not realizing but feeling a certain amount of guilt or like something had broken inside me where I couldn't read books anymore but it Mm. wasn't that I think it was anything on my end I think it was the type of reading and writing that is associated with like art study it just wasn't interesting to me it wasn't it none of it felt relevant even like big theory just did not did not I just couldn't get myself to care as much as I tried to and then when it came to writing essays that would sort that would cause problems for me because I remember I getting feedback on one essay where the tutor was like this does not have enough um historical authoritative references and I was like I know because I don't care and I, I can totally see why it's important and you know it's good to know what's come before so like you know we don't um try and start whole new conversations when people who are alive before us have already figured a lot of it out I totally get that but if you're trying to make a painting of like um what I was doing at the time which was like snapchat filters (laughs) like painted in oil it's like I really don't care about Foucault like I just do not care (laughs) it's not gonna matter to me But I think mm-hmm. as well, alongside that, it was like they were giving you these specific references and saying, like in these like group projects and like these crits, they were saying like, remember that you're in an institution. Like think about what that means and like think about the context that you're in. Like the way that art school positions itself, like the conceptual training that it gives you is very, very specific, right? Like it equips you to, I think this is like Morgan Quaintance's words rather than my own. So I'm just repackaging them here. But like he said that like that conceptual training gives you the ability to question the terms and means of your display and engagement or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. It gives you the ability to like question all these things about like context and position. And like that was still there, but it wasn't quite a conservative way. It was like 
it's just quite Blairite. It was like the YBAs and Banksy, like kind <laughs> of fight us, mm. but on these very specific terms that are entirely palatable to like corporate interests or state interests or you know mm-hmm. small small rebellion but not too big I wanted to sort of appreciate what you two sort of arrived at in terms of wanting to see feeling restored to the reception of art um, the term embodied criticism gets used in referring to this this sort of approach can you talk to us a bit about how you understand that and and what conversation that erupted out of I don't think it was too conscious at the beginning. Um, we had started the whole thing as a bit of a joke <laughs> because we'd had this conversation where um, Zarina had gone to see an exhibition that I'd recommended to her and had seen uh, the Evening Standard Review on the way home and just all it did was like describe what was in the room and bang three stars on it. And we'd had this discussion in the studio because as I said, like chatting about art was like all we did, you know, maybe more than make the work that we were supposed to be doing on this course. We would just like wonder about how the art world worked and what we were going to do after university. So we, it was quite natural for us to discuss things like this in the studio. And that was the topic of the day, like the soup of the day. And we thought that with that one review compared to all the other instances of like tutors giving us texts that again we would just never read or the journals that they would tell us to subscribe to with our student loans and just being you know almost like Vogue where it's cover of cover of like uh, cover to cover Cartier adverts and with a few reviews thrown in that don't give any sort of opinion they do the same where it's like this is what's in the room and this is when it ends Mm -hmm. and actually Mm -hmm. it's in Hong Kong so you're never going to get to visit it um we would we so we spoke about this and we spoke about our uh just disengagement from it and said oh we should just do it ourselves like that'd be funny and a few days later we had a website together (laughs) we that's what I mean like it wasn't conscious we were the all all I would say that was conscious about it was trying to write in a more casual way, and we thought it was very funny to do emoji summaries instead of star ratings. And what we've kind of come to realize in all this time afterwards is we we got into this routine of like posting one thing a week, and it was only about six months into it that one of the reviews that I'd written about a review for. Jesse Darling's exhibition at Arcadia Mesa. Um, that was kind of the turning point for us uh, when we realised what it was that the white pube might have been doing. Um, in a, you know, in, in the way a lot of people will make, like make art and then post rationalise what what the art has achieved. So when the review had gone up about Jesse's exhibition. They had tweeted, and I can probably say this like off the top of my head. And if I can't, Serena can do it instead. Um, I think the tweet was not facetious or ironic. This might be the harshest, most true review because the white pube channels somatic currents, not just fucking with discourse. Is that right, mm-hmm. Serena? That is word for word. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> It's like it's such an important moment for us in our history that like <laughs> that, that we've both like internalized Jesse's words <laughs> and really took it to heart. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because they felt seen and you felt seen <laughs> yeah. is that is the summary there yeah that, yeah wow. it was that summary but also like in in the actual what Jesse had said was the let me go back what Jesse had identified was that when we go to exhibitions and write about them we don't then go and place that experience next to the canon we place it next to ourselves and we say this is how it felt to encounter this is this is our somatic current this is like the current that went through us this is how it felt to walk into that space and this is what it smelled like and this is what it felt like and um this is the mood that I was in that day and this is how the exhibition experience slotted into my life not that I was trying to slot into like the art canon's life by understanding what was going on and right. that is why embodied criticism 
is like the closest term I think to what we have done in in review and exhibitions. Mm-hmm. The thing I was repelled by in so much, um, let's say, establishment criticism when I started Momus was the over-reliance on description in lieu of taking a position. When you're just embodying your writing and putting your bodies inside the writing, how do you shift beyond description yourselves? And is that something that um, is important to you to get beyond description, even if it is, you know, that subjective, experiential, textured, lived-in description? Oh, that's a really fucking good question. Okay. Yeah. See, that's a, that's a tough, that's a sticky one still, you know, because like, I think still even today, like five years on, there's still a part of me that questions whether it's like these things that I'm writing, like when it is that like textured kind of pressed up against myself and like my own, like the literal fact of my own body, I'll still send it over to Gab when it's done and be like, I don't think this is a real review, you know, I've not said anything. And then Gab's like, Uh, no, don't worry. It's fine. Like this is like all valid and good. And yeah, you've done a review. This is a white people review. Welcome. But like five years on, there's still a part of my brain that like it hasn't clicked with. And so Mm. I don't know. I'm not really sure that it's ever a conscious thing that we've got like fully cemented. We're never standing on like even ground with it. Like mm. it's constantly shifting behind, like underneath us and behind us. It's like just rumbling away, and like it's something that we have to constantly like re up on. And mm-hmm. I don't know. Sometimes it kind of it fades in and out, right? Like it kind of waxes and wanes because I'm at the moment very concerned with like the political structures of the art world and like the institution. And like I've been spending lockdown writing up against the institution and trying to like find some greater meaning and like the weird movements of diversity policy right mm-hmm. and it's kind of weird to think about that as related to this like sticky subjectivity like where does it sit in relation to that and I'm, I'm like mm-hmm. I don't know part of it is that like it's of concern to me and my body so like it it maybe is tangentially that sticky subjectivity but like all of it kind of I don't know, it all comes back to that self, right? Like we've got to write from our positions. We can't ever write in a way that like denies the fact of ourselves. I think that's it. That's the bottom line. Yes, that's very well said. I think um, there's a good example there in a review that Zarina wrote about Yuri Patterson's exhibition. Um, So we, very early on, um, I was at a Uh, I don't know how to describe this because I can't exactly remember what it was but it was a talk at a gallery and there was a critic up on the stage who had said oh um you know the white pube basically isn't critical or it isn't political because um it's not politically specific in its writing so it just it doesn't count as criticism it's bad criticism and he had quoted there and I was like in the audience just in shock (laughs) Um, wow but he'd said that you know oh he went I don't know whether it was you or you know your partner because when he said the white pube I'd like exclaimed (laughs) it was like so we knew I was there he went I don't know if it was you or your partner but one of you wrote this review of Yuri Patterson's exhibition at the Chisholm Hale and you know you just ambled through the text and you know you were just talking about like all this other stuff and then at the very end of it you mentioned that it was an exhibition by Yuri Patterson and and then you know I don't I don't think that counts or something to that effect and I was like wow okay (laughs) fine and then a few months later was at an exhibition opening for Cecile B Evans at Tate Liverpool and Cecile had popped over and she said that she really liked the white pube which I was I was shocked about because I didn't know she was <laughs> I didn't even know she would recognize me or know what it was and she pulled me over to the the table that she was sat at and she was like oh let me introduce you to my partner Yuri and it was Yuri Patterson from the review that Zarina had had done and I had I, I mentioned this anecdote of like someone at a talk saying that you know, our criticism was bad criticism because it wasn't politically specific in relation to Yuri's text, which for context, uh, Zarina had reviewed the experience of going to the show as almost akin to like Ikea and like buying things from Ikea and rearranging your bedroom and your living space and how that feels. And I told 
these artists about it and they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, the reason that we love the white pube is because for once we actually know what it feels like to go to the show. They said that up until that point in their careers, they they maybe know um, how the work is related to the market, but they don't know how it relates to the body. And they said, like, that's your value. As artists, we didn't know that until now. And, you know, it's the type of thing you probably wouldn't get from a quick visitor survey or, like, the the quote that's pulled out from a, a timeout review, but we would, we were going in depth. And they said that that was, that was the value. The Plaskett Foundation is pleased to announce new work by Caroline Musso, winner of the 2019 Plaskett Award in Painting. Her solo exhibition, That Nagging Feeling, is now open to the public at the Art Gallery of Guelph until September 4th. Caroline Mousseau's paintings explore the effects of slowness and repetitive effort, drawing attention to the gendered history of painting, particularly abstract expressionism. Deeply invested in painting as a spatial and temporal practice, Mousseau proposes a feminist approach to abstraction as one based in crafting and gestures. That Nagging Feeling is open Tuesday to Sunday from noon to five at the Art Gallery of Guelph. Um, you began with, or or very early, I think, in the trajectory of uh, the publication, you had a, pu- a piece published called Why I Hate the White Cube, and you recently updated it. Um, in the second version, you write, if I'm completely honest, yeah, being the white cube changed me. I went from being at arm's length, questioning the validity of my own existence and proximity to art, to tripping on the power that was afforded to me by way of this position as critic. So I'd love to just hear you two talk a bit about these two iterations and the compulsion to update it, the timing of that update. And and if you could just maybe explore that quote a little bit more for us, because I really am very curious about the problem of power as it creeps in on a, on a bootstrap thing that's gaining momentum. Yeah. I mean, actually, Gab, I wonder how you feel about that, because I wrote it, so I kind of, it really... <laughs> Obviously, it came out of my head, and I'm like assuming that it speaks for both of us. But I've never actually checked, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I could give you the room. <laughs> um, I think I, I like that Zarina writes that we've tripped up on that power a few times, um, because I think it's something that we never expected we would have, and we've had to really figure out that responsibility so I do agree with it um but I'm glad mm. there there have been times as our readership has grown and our power has has been um projected in a way that maybe wasn't real in practice because I think we put forward this image of like two successful critics um and that success to a lot of people means financial success and like we've got they think we've got all these resources and that we work from an office and we're you know we're very well connected but like (laughs) we're really not (laughs) and we've had to scramble for years and years for this to be uh, a manageable income and even now like I've only just about a month ago moved out of my family's house and that's four and a half years into this and it's a different story entirely for Zarina because she's got London uh, London um, house prices to deal with so when will that happen we do not know <laughs> um, and I think part of this issue of power is like having to remind people that we are mega rich and we're coming from a very different place than a lot of other writers so please be gentle with that and we've tried to bring everyone back to reality a little bit by doing things like publishing our accounts and we actually there was a moment last year or the year before where we we decided to change our Instagram bio so that people didn't get their expectations uh, mixed up and we put like irresponsible unprofessional and part-time in the Instagram bio so straight away people could could not expect too much from us that we then could not deliver on and I think that has really helped us even though it was like 
such a small change just to add that straight there in the masthead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can relate. I think a lot about the discrepancy between, as you say, the projected power and the lived reality of of holding this thing together with a ball of tape and some chewing gum and, <laughs> you know, and how that can feel unfair sometimes if you're held to a certain standard as a result of the work you're doing when you know that each day is this fire that you have to put out, this raging fire. Exactly. But I think maybe there was a a tipping point for us in 2017 or 18 when we were trying to say to ourselves like we don't actually have all that power people keep saying that we've got all this power and we don't like you know we're still living at home and um we've, we've, we're not making hardly any money from this but I think now we realize that some of those crit some of those criticisms of us were correct because uh when we say things on Instagram or Twitter it is seen by a lot of people and it is remembered by a lot of people and that that doesn't change whether or not you're making money from it when we started to use Instagram a lot more than we maybe had done at the beginning or we used it in a different way we used it to make call outs and to be a little bit more like directly critical of individuals we got immediately uh criticisms of cyberbullying and it was interesting because we would say well you know if this was in print this would just be critique <laughs> but it's on Instagram so you're calling it cyberbullying and and can two young women who are um you know marginalized in different ways like can they be cyberbullies <laughs> like if if we're talking about a mega institution or an artist like Mark Quinn who, you know, has so much wealth and visibility. Like, can we technically bully him? And I remember one of our friends um, sending us like a quiet message just to say, all of these uh, accusations of cyberbullying are just the way to silence you. And if you listen to them now, then the whole thing's just going to be over. So you need to kind of like reconcile that and decide what to do with all this responsibility. And I think that that's been really helpful because... I'm really glad that we didn't shut up. Um, there are things that we've said in the past that I would say in a different way, but I'm glad that we we've still continued to speak because I think the there was definitely a point of like fear where we had all this power, and then all of these people who were like, "No, you've got too much power now, shut up," and that could have just been the end of it because we like you know <laughs> we don't want to upset people. <laughs> we're too scared. <laughs> But I think I think a lot of that has to do with like the politics of power, right? Like we don't I think power looks a bit more uncomfortable on us because of our identities. People don't really particularly like seeing a young brown woman or like a, a young working class woman from like the north of England. Like people really don't like seeing us as either authorities or people that are capable of like housing any kind of power in any way and I think like (laughs) whether that power is projected or not the fact that it looks so uncomfortable on us is quite telling like there's like a real fundamental problem with the way people are able to hold our criticisms and and our ability to speak truthfully or honestly about things like Mm. I'm aware that there are some things that we'll say that like will kind of sound really really like (laughs) disagreeable coming out of our mouths but like I think about things that other people have said that are men or that are white and middle class and it kind of just gets accepted and assimilated as reasonable critique and that is really fucking annoying and that's very much about like the politics of power but it's also like I think it's also fundamentally about like tone policing right like not to be all 2012 tumblr about it but like it kind of it is tone policing it's like if you're gonna say this you better say it in a really intellectual way because you better you know cloud it in all this authority outside of yourself it can't come from you actually as a person in the person that you are you've got to like you've got to kind of say it in a language that's acceptable to us as the white art world bourgeois or whatever mm-hmm. but you know but I mean? I've like some something has happened over the past week that has just reminded me how good power can be um <laughs> so Tate is under a lot of criticism at the moment because they are threatening 300 odd redundancies and you know this is happening while 
the directors are on like mega salaries um in this country i know that it's a whole different story in america but in this country they are rich people and everyone is saying well you know they should take a pay cut in order to protect the redundancies and this is on top of receiving like seven million from a 1.5 billion government emergency arts package and 10 percent just doesn't seem like enough so that's been part of of the criticism but another thing that has happened is a big art patron Anthony DeFay had sent a picture to a young black artist of himself holding a gollywog like a small black caricature doll and has just treated her really really badly but he's like a mega patron of Tate and a lot of the works in their collection are still on loan from him so you know there's still value being added to all of his wealth and he's got like a plaque up in in the main hall at Tate Modern and a lot of people are saying well you know you need to return these works you can't continue to have business with him and they've said well no we've stopped we've stopped all our business with him and everyone's like no you haven't (laughs) we all know that those works are still on the walls and that that plaque is still in the turbine hall and Tate have not commented on this publicly which has meant that journalists from the guardian and other publications have not really been able to write about it because um they've just been so silent until this week when a post that we did on instagram uh attracted the actual tate account to comment on the situation which then resulted in a phone call to zarina from the guardian to thank to thank the white pube for making that wow. kind of making that space um available for a continued conversation and then this weekend an article went up that criticized the redundancies and also their continued work with Anthony DeFay that then also quoted the white pube's instagram and it was just like oh my god <laughs> like it this was, would yeah. never have happened otherwise <laughs> It was so specific as well. Like the phone call was very much like, oh, well, the Instagram post, their comment on it made it a matter of public record. So like mm-hmm. we can refer to the Instagram post. I don't know if we should say this out loud because maybe they won't like, maybe they'll be way more careful about commenting in the future. But they've it done it again today. Again. Yeah, exactly. The Tate account commented again today as in the official Tate account because we had said that their directors make too much money. And they were like, oh, no, 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 they, they're getting 10% pay cuts. And we're like, that's not enough. But it's like the fact that the actual Tate account are commenting on white pube Instagram posts makes me laugh so much because they must have had a meeting. They must have, like, <laughs> this must be, like, at least the second meeting where it's like, oh, what shall we say? They've made a meme. They've made a meme about us. <laughs> it's, like, so good. <laughs> but it's so good that we can instrumentalize like this visibility now and and make Tate have means <laughs> it's great <laughs> it's incredible it's a huge credit to you I mean I there's a few things on my mind with that it, first is to say I had a similar thing a few years back with the big art fair here in Canada and not that we have much of a market but you know we've got our art fair and it happens at a convention center and they don't pay anybody to uh you know do tours they hope that exposure will be payment enough and at one point I just got so frustrated you know it's like ten thousand dollars for a booth there like anywhere else so what the fuck are they doing not paying people to to come bring expertise into those rooms those bland suffocating rooms so I said something about you know how offended I was at that point to be um, offered exposure in lieu of payment on Facebook and apparently a meeting was held (gasps) and not only did they analyze that fucking tweet they then poured over everyone who had liked it to see if any of the gallerists that they show at the fair were sort of you know, turning their cheek or or showing a resistance to the model that they were insistent on. It was wild. Wow. That rippling effect of of speaking, well, it's a tired term at this point, but truth to power is is hugely emboldening. But on that note, I wanted to ask if, you know, this many years in, there are any compromises that you can feel pressing your pressing against your ability to speak that sharply or anything sort of sanding the corners. I think not. I think um, it's been really interesting over the past year, especially for the Patreon to really come into its own, 
for the first two years, the amount of money coming into our Patreon would just cover train fares so that I could meet up with Serena in London. And now it's enough for us to like take some money and pay ourselves for the writing that we do and also to pay like the web residents uh, who take over the page every month. And I think that is exactly what we were trying to do because we wanted to be reader supported and we hope that the readers who help fund us know exactly what we are and they know who we are and they know that we're not gonna hold back and it's kind of something that we have gotten to the practice of is like not looking too carefully at who the patrons are so that if we go on to review something that for just by coincidence one of them has done like it's not um it's not in our mind and we, we don't compromise what, what we would want to say anyway. But all of that is to say that we're not beholden to public funding or the arts council or any specific grants. Like it's, it's just the readers. And I think that has helped us keep some integrity. I think um, like in regards to that with the funding, it is like massively important, like that and that independence is super important. But um I'm not sure that, like, regarding institutions, we've got, like, a very clear-cut kind of independence from them. When it comes to things like when Gab earlier kind of mentioned, like, a weird kind of backlash and projection of power um, with certain things that we've said, I think there is, like, an element of that creeping into... It it does creep into the way we kind of put things out and, like, how, how fast and loose we can be with it all, how how much can we actually say what's on our mind as it is on our mind and I think mm. I don't know it does affect you in like it, of course it does like if <laughs> if a group of MA students put out an open letter citing like the dictionary definition of bullying and like provide <laughs> quite a to be honest like really gendered and racialized backlash against us for having fun in public like I don't want to go to like a, a place that that would potentially happen again and like I'm less bothered about that because to be quite honest, our coverage of like spaces on that layer of the art, like the arts ecology, like where they are quite protective and like where we like, you know, where we've been accused of being cyber bullies. So I think when the white feud began, we would really, as Zarina said, play fast and loose with our opinions and uh, also the opinions of other people who had like sent them in maybe anonymously <laughs> and I think we're a little bit more careful now to double check those things before going public in case we get mm. sued and this is something that I am thinking of uh, and another reason we got public indemnity insurance last year and more broadly I think just being like two young women on the internet I am very aware that we are not uh, in the safest position and we have had some pretty obsessive trolls so there are certain things that I'm like trying to figure out now behind the scenes about how to make ourselves safer so that you know someone doesn't turn up at the front door because that would be scary it's (laughs) like oh my god I completely forgot like yeah (laughs) I had to report a hate crime to the police like and the fact that I had to go to the police was like I obviously wouldn't (laughs) like I didn't want to go to the police but like I had to go to the police like that was the scale of it like yeah I forgot about that that's the point wow. isn't it like it's mental yeah. yeah yeah I mean when we talk about stakes and criticism you never think it's going to be quite this <sighs> yeah you know in my experience as a publisher we we work with emerging writers as often as uh, more established writers and when for instance a young sort of whippersnapper, you know, often like a person of color comes to us with a brave pitch and, you know, we help model the piece and a few weeks later it comes out and it's a big old swing. I have found that they will never be as brave again. And that as some of those writers start to publish with the major establishment publications, you start to see those edges be rounded down and a certain kind of, um, yeah, a friendlier position be assumed. And and maybe that's partly because those publications are n- not in the habit of publishing barbed or um, stakeholding criticism in the way that we insist on doing. But it saddens me to see that we don't actually build that bravery as we build our writing ability, but it, something has to be traded more often than not. So that's part of what I was asking after. I know that you're funding yourself in a really... Um, 
a crucial way through your readers and not through, say, gallerists or granting bodies. But you do have about 60,000 people looking at you on Instagram, etc. So I wonder if any of that ever cows you into um, a quieter position than you would normally take. It sounds like no. <laughs> it's uh, No, I, and I think partly the reason is because there's two of us in this. If I was on my own, I can totally see uh, it playing out in the same way that you've just described. But I think because there are two of us, we've at least always got someone who's like, oh, just do it. Just go for it. It's fine. <laughs> if anything happens, like at least there's one other person to back you up. And yeah, right. I We're have very found complicit in each other's agendas. Like <laughs> we do, we really egg each other on. <laughs> oh, I love it. So I think all of this has been very interesting doing it in a city like Liverpool, where, you know, the people that you sometimes critique are the people that you bump into in the street or on the bus. And part of it is something that I enjoy because in the same way uh, it feels kind of empowering to see like the actual Tate account responding to you on Instagram. Uh, When you bump into those people it makes it all feel a bit tangible and like the criticism we are publishing is actually going somewhere because all of this is happening on the internet and when we put out these texts or Instagram posts or tweets it sometimes just feels like they go out and then dissolve and then that's it Mm -hmm. but if you're commenting on someone's transphobia for example uh to bump into that person at a private view and to see that you know they're not happy to see you there is is a is quite a good feeling because Mm -hmm. you know that um they know they've been caught out and I like that I feel like um I feel like criticism is is useful then it it makes it all land Right. There's a material consequence that you can totally bear witness you. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to kind of shift into a different way of talking about vulnerability. Um, I'm wondering how you two thread the needle of including yourselves in the writing while, I, I don't know, resisting the implication that your biography is required to establish your credibility or your POV. So I guess I'm wondering about like admitting subjectivity into criticism as a kind of requirement of personal admission or disclosure, do we have to do it every time? And is there a way in which now that your audience is so sizable, um, that admission of biography can feel exposing or uh, like a kind of currency that you don't want to be spending? That's a really good question. Um, I think it's something that I struggle with, actually. It's not something that, that has been reconciled in a settled way. It depends which part of myself I'm putting out there. Like when it comes to like the food columns, I'm very, very specific. Like all three food columns we've published so far have been about my history with disordered eating. And I I think in the third one, I maybe mentioned like briefly, not even weight, but like a vague allusion to where it was. But I'm, I'm, I think I want to be very careful with that. I don't ever want to mention the specifics of my disorder because it would be so like that would be such a vulnerable thing for me to admit and I don't think it should in exactly the way that you described I don't think that an audience of that size and at that distance from me is entitled to know those things about me and my body I can just kind of allude to it and write about it in a way that is pressed up against myself where I'm like situating it alongside my body and like my history and all of the things that I'm comfortable sharing like weird kind of anecdotes and um I guess like feelings right like it's it's, these food columns are like mainly feelings and there are ways for me to write around the specifics of a disorder without making myself vulnerable through it I think is probably the way that I phrase it it's difficult I think it's one of those things that I've just got to try and feel it out every time I do write something that feels a little bit touchy-feely or like a little bit too close like like, we were quite fast and loose with it at the beginning like I really took a great deal of like (laughs) weird pleasure in using the white pubes like my personal blog and having it kind of contain that aspect of myself like early early the white pube like the first two or three years kind of read as a, a, a documentation of my early 20s and it's only like as our audience has exploded that I've got a little bit more careful with it and been a bit more kind of measured in how I handle myself in relation to these things because I think fundamentally it, it, it's it, it is about protecting myself and like not really letting it become like a 
biographical study, or anthropological in that way, actually, to be honest. It's also just about the fact that, like, sometimes white audiences are really very over-familiar with content, like, with subjective content coming from women of colour. And I just, I really don't think that that's okay. <laughs> I don't want to invite that because there's not really any way to reason against it because white people are so fucking insistent that like they have an entitlement to your, like that part of yourself, I think. And long way of saying, there are ways to like speak exclusively and about the things you want. It, I, I think it's a skill that I've had to learn and it's interesting and it's not like there yet, but yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and I do feel like the complete opposite I like totally support everything Zarina saying but for me I'm like you know when <laughs> you know when people say oh TikTok is stealing your data or all these different I'm like everything's got my data already like all of my life is on the internet <laughs> and like it is a public diary of sorts and for me and it, this comes with a certain amount of privilege like I'm okay with it and I do totally imagine myself continuing to do that I like it. yeah I think it's fine and I, I I really do feel the need to explain what is going on in my life as much as I'm able to in order to make the thing that I'm writing about make sense because it always affects it how did you two arrive at your voice like the kind of shorthand familiar funny you know often speaking out of the corner of your mouth or stripping syntax was it a conscious decision and how has it evolved <laughs> I mean I think it started very off the bat like we the first few reviews we wrote they're still on the website we've hidden them as well as possible but like <laughs> <laughs> they're still there you can still find them if you're if you know where to look but like I think the first couple the first maybe three four months of text that we wrote were written as we would speak to each other over text I think it was how I'd that's how I'd describe it. And then maybe they got a bit more articulate in the sense that they, they they became a bit less choppy. They became more recognizably like reviews. And I think we've always wanted to maintain that element of like, or, or that voice of like, we want to write how we speak. We want it to sound like us. Like Gab says, Gab phrases it in a, in a way that's quite nice. She says that she wants her writing to sound like it's got an accent or it's got her accent. And mm-hmm. Like, I think that applies for me as well. Like, I kind of, I, I want it to sound like how I speak. And if I am going to be writing exclusively for, like, you know, a non-white audience, or if I am going to be writing about something that perhaps is a little bit um, sensitive or, like, that would make me vulnerable, I do want to speak about it in a way that, like, has the ability to, I don't know, place barriers, right? And speak on my own terms, I think. And so I think that's, it's, it kind of, it has so many purposes and it really works for us. And I don't know, it's also fundamentally more interesting. <laughs> than... something, yeah, something that has happened to me though, uh, very recently, is like this more elastic way of writing that you're describing has uh, been slightly lost or like, I've eroded the edges of it because I started to write about video games instead of art and partly that was due to the nature of like lockdown and not being able to go to any exhibitions but like mostly that's because I'm enjoying writing about video games much more than I ever did about art and I think because in doing that I've attracted like a different audience or a new audience to the writing I'm like almost reintroducing myself to them because I'm like oh my god I need to like dress nice (laughs) (laughs) something's really weird happening where I'm like oh fuck I need to like yeah just be a bit be a bit um tighter about it um but I'm not like annoyed about that at all it's been an almost a new way of writing because uh it has smartened up in a in a a sense but I'm enjoying it but it's it's strange (laughs) honestly I think your game reviews are some of your best writing it feels like your like most actualized self and I like I wonder if that's like less about being like self-conscious or self-aware and just about like maybe yeah maybe it is actually just about being self-conscious in it rather than being self-aware it is I think self no totally I think self-consciousness and like embarrassment are like really good qualities in writing I think everyone should publish things that they're embarrassed of. 
<laughs> I think it's the best, best way to go. <laughs> Maybe that should be my new mandate. I'm looking. <laughs> it's, don't look at me. I'm shy. But do. <laughs> please read it or I'll cry. Oh um, uh, I'm wondering, so one of the questions that I was sort of gesturing at when I first started this conversation with you two, I want to kind of circle around to fully now. It's around how do we evolve? How do we grow these outfits responsibly with an eye to the kind of tall shadow of institutionalization and, you know, embrace the power that we've been talking around and the kind of capital that you can accrue through a significant audience without sort of rolling inertly into the kind of teleological imperative, which is like, do you institutionalize? There is a really great short essay or like blog post called Geeks, Mops and Sociopaths in Subculture Evolution. And it totally set out like what it calls the birth of cool. So, you know, there is something and then a scene forms around its creators and that scene draws fanatics and the creators and fanatics are like both the geeks that are attracted to that new thing but um the that subculture because it is like you know it's got some kind of cultural capital it draws mops and mops are something that they describe as fans but not rabid fans like the fanatics they show up to have a good time and contribute as little as they reasonably can in exchange. That's the quote. And it kind of sets out like the path of what happens because in order for that original new thing to survive, it needs finances. But, you know, only a small amount of an audience can't probably fully sustain that thing. So it's going to need money from the mops and then there's going to be a mop invasion and then the sociopaths are going to come who are going to invest further in that thing and just totally change the shape of it and then the cool thing about it dies <laughs> so we've like we we read this a long time ago and I think it's always in the back of my head that we can't let that infl- inflation take over us it, it should always kind of stay the two of us it should always stay maybe unincorporated and it should be um a it should be organized in a way that means we spend most time writing rather than doing any admin. Because if we lose the time where we can write, then what's the point? And we're so careful about this. And that's why I like, I'm really grateful for the Patreon because there is no way this would still survive if that hadn't have come through for us. But now, as you're saying, like in terms of how to future-proof something, because we've got a certain amount of uh, patrons that isn't that doesn't mean we are future proofed like do we then need to incorporate do we need to be a charity or a company that is like a limited company so that we can apply for bigger things that might mean you know if there is another pandemic or whatever happens or a recession like we are safe and we've got jobs and I think we've tried to build this scaffold around the website where like we have day jobs as well so our income is never fully um, reliant on freelance work or writing. We've got day jobs and that's a big part of like the weight off. Um, but it's hard. We don't, we don't fully know. I think in a wider sense, like we've been, I, without sounding too naive about it, I think a lot of it does come down to politics. We, we got some advice very early on from someone who was like, make sure you stay small. You want to make sure that you're still able to do the interesting stuff. Like you don't mm. want to buy into that like capitalist model of expansion as and like growth is like the main priority over everything else. And we really took that to heart. I think it's, it's something that's really chimed with our, like, you know, our personal politics as, you know, two people that are very happy on the left wing of things like, um, I, th- I think that has got to do with politics and what we kind of value and our personal principles. But I think also part of me is kind of like people have called us a media institution in the past and it, it's never really resonated. Like how how true is it? Maybe it is true. Like, I'm not sure. But I think I think it kind of 
it's it's still up in the air it's still fundamentally a question but like we we've made every effort that we can to stay small so if we are an institution then by all means we are a tiny one like but it's not something that's like quite settled in that sense if you know what I mean like it's still something that we do worry about like we're not future-proof as Gab said and we also kind of are, are still like very fallible human beings who probably have messed up in the past and like are just trying our best and I think that's a pretty that's a good space to move from like I'm happy with that as an answer like no I can believe in that answer as a I mean there's so much else I feel like we could talk about but I'll I'll try to be conscientious here of the time and and throw maybe a last question to you around um a piece that you wrote or published rather uh, fairly recently called Fuck the Police, Fuck the State, Fuck the Tate. <laughs> I'm just realizing just how appropriate that is. Riots and reform. Um, as you know, this season of our podcast is asking the question, sort of what does this change and what do you wish to see changed? And um, we couldn't ask for a, a, a more, I, I don't know, bell ringing answer than the what you've baked into that piece. I'll quote you briefly here before um, sort of throwing it to you to expand maybe a bit on what you did with this text and, and its reception. We do not advocate for reform. We advocate for abolition. We mean this for the police and prisons, but we believe it should be applied to art and cultural institutions too. There are too many limits to what reform can facilitate and this obsession with reforming old inherited exclusionary policies in organizations has held up real change for decades. We are tired of watching the art world pretend to want to be better. And later, institutions have remained static at their white moneyed center while populating their surface with as much diverse busy work to deflect from their core inertia. I mean, it's brilliant, it's charged, it's terrifically compelling and clear, but I, I would love to hear a bit more about sort of the context for this, the timing and how it's been received. In terms of the timing, like, um, I, I can't remember when we published it, about a month ago, um, but it was kind of in and amongst the midst of like, like all of these institutions were posted, like we're posting black squares and announcing their true desire to be better and people were kind of calling them on their bullshit as you would like as any good citizen would and these institutions were like coming back like the next day with like oh we're gonna make sure that we do this this and this and like we're gonna have all these tokenistic gestural diversity policy things in place and I I'm not the first person to say this by any means like but institutional diversity policy has a long history in the UK it dates all the way back to like the 60s and 70s like the institutions have been grappling with the question of like what to do about Britain's ethnic arts since literally the 70s and the Arts Council have been kind of mismanaging diversity policy from the top down ever since and uh, I think that positioning of it like the positioning of it in relation to like this surge and everyone talking about an abolitionist politic it made it very clear to me that like this is fundamentally a question then about like those two points reform and abolition um and if we're comfortable in embracing an abolitionist politic towards the police then what other racist institutions do we come into contact with within the space of the art world um I'm not the first person to write this. Like, this is, I put it all in the same place and I'm indebted to so many people whose writing and practices have been informative and educational. So I think, I don't know, that text for me kind of, in my mind, how it was received, I don't really know. I didn't really pay too much attention to it. I kind of, I know how I feel about it, which is that I think it was a moment in time for me and I think it needs to probably be chased up with, a longer more considered text about the history of institutional diversity policy and the ways in which it fails um mm. and and probably and I, I say probably I'm working on another text about the world of like community arts and models of practice that exist on the grassroots and on that like grassroots layer of activism and art making and cultural production all happening in one place along with like social provision and the welfare state and all of these questions and I think that text for me acted as, as, as a starting point like it was a cal- it was a palate cleanser I think mm-hmm. um because I don't know how much of like I obviously like those things were going on behind the scenes 
I'd held these beliefs about like separatism and like a desire for like secession from the rest of the art world and like the arts council wider funding industrial complex you know and I kind of it didn't really ever trickle down into our reviews or the art thoughts and this was kind of like me just being sick <laughs> like I just kind of it, I couldn't really hold it in any longer I, I couldn't wait to like condition it into a publishable thought. Gab did you want to add anything to that? Uh, just that I really liked the fuck the police fuck the state <laughs> fuck the state title and we're making <laughs> t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> Moments the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank the White Pube, Gabrielle De La Puente, and Zarina Mohammed for their contribution to this season. And if you like our work, please help us make it. Consider making a one-time donation to Momus by contacting me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca, or a monthly donation for as little as $1 or $5 per month through patreon.com slash momusart. This has been episode 24 of Momus the Podcast.